Welcome to the Idol Cast. Let's go. song today is Big Bang's Haru Haru, performed live at Yanmar Stadium Nagai in Osaka, Japan on July 31st, 2016, during their 10th anniversary 0-10 concert tour. I thought it would be nice to open with this song, because not only was Haru Haru one of Big Bang's first real hits, and not only because this arrangement slaps, but also because I think that teen angst aside, you can hear the seeds of what Big Bang sound would eventually mature into, which is our topic in this series of episodes. As we begin to accept that Big Bang has ended their journey together as a group, I thought it would be worth looking back at what I consider to be K-pop's artistic pinnacle. Made. M-A-D-E. For new K-pop fans, especially those who started following K-pop after 2018 or so, it's impossible to overstate how massive both Big Bang and this album really were, and far beyond the metrics, statistics, and perfect all kills. This album is simply good. No, not good. Great. A masterpiece. And it was everywhere. I often talk on here about how idols and K-pop are a subculture, even in Korea. And it's true that there are a lot of quote-unquote hits that nobody outside of narrow K-pop spaces has ever heard of. That's not the kind of hit I'm talking about when I talk about Big Bang, and Made. But don't take my word for it. Here's American rapper Lil Yachty freestyling over Big Bang's song Bay Bay off of Made in 2016 in honor of Big Bang's 10th anniversary. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You feel me? Lil Yachty, aka Lil Boat. And I'm just chilling with my boys right now. As you can feel me, my bro here looking down on the haters. You feel me? 
We looking down on the haters, you feel me? We just chilling right now. My boy T.O.P. is always at the T.O.P., you feel me? That's one thing T.O.P. told me. T.O.P. told me to always be at the T.O.P., you feel me? My boy don't talk about nothing but the top, you feel me? He said, "You can, as you can see, ladies, his face is like, don't come over if you're not giving the T.O.P. That's what his face says. Yeah, fucking with this shit. You feel me? I think I might drop a mixtape on these beats. You feel me? And I'ma let you know right now, ain't nobody fucking with me in this motherfucking music shit, nigga. I'm the king of the teens in this motherfucker. You dig? You don't know my name, goddamn. By now, you goddamn better get get to doing some motherfucking research. You feel me? Just like that. Ah, uh, yeah, yeah. I might drop fifty thousand on the necklace. I don't give a motherfuck cause I'm reckless Middle finger to a cop, I could give a damn Young nigga, I might pull up in that goddamn What the fuck? Ten bands spent it on a Hummer truck Told that bitch to back it up Yeah, whoa, goddamn Check a nigga wrist, nigga keep lucky charms What you wanna say to him? The video for this is incredible, and I'll link it in the show notes. It goes on for over 20 minutes and features the young breakout rapper uh, rapping in front of Big Bang member Standees. In the six-plus years since Big Bang went on hiatus for the members to perform their mandatory military service, then return from military service, then dropped one last major hit, and then essentially disbanded, English-speaking K-pop fans have been subjected to some truly wild misinformation, bitterly negative press, and outsized histrionics about both the group and its members. So before I start talking about the album, because this is my podcast, I think it's worth going back to give an overview of the group itself, where they came from, and where they were in 2015 when Made was released. And again, because this is my podcast, to really understand where Big Bang came from, we need to take a look at their agency, YG Entertainment, because Big Bang, who debuted in 2006, helped build YG Entertainment into one of the premier K-pop companies, much in the way that HOT and then TVXQ did for SM Entertainment. And to understand where YG Entertainment comes from, we have to start with a group called Solitaji and Boys. So we return once again to the 1980s in Seoul, South Korea, where a young man, the son of an electrician, future founder of YG Entertainment named Young Hyung Suk, also known as Young Goon or YG, has given up a career in the buildings trade in order to dance. Now, YG had had a passion for dancing since he was in middle school, and a love for music from guys like Michael Jackson from, you know, around the same time. So it makes sense that once he'd abandoned the pragmatic career world, the next step would be to join a breakdancing crew. YG joined a crew called Spark, alongside a guy named Ijuno, who will pop up again in just a few minutes, and he ended up as one of the many regulars at Moonlight Club, 
a dance club frequented by black American GIs in the Itaewon neighborhood of Seoul. Echoing the way American sailors brought rock and roll records into the British port city of Liverpool in the 1950s, inspiring the future Beatles, among others, Moonlight Club was where young Koreans could pick up the new sounds and dances from America and perfect their own takes on them. This is ground I've covered in other episodes, but the 1980s was a time of cultural liberalization in Korea, and part of this process was the birth of a new, soul-based, teen-focused pop music scene. All the old rules were being thrown away, and teens were hungry for something that was all their own. So YG, who had become a well-known dancer at the club, was eventually hired on as one of the backing dancers for the hottest teen idol in town, another Moonlight Club regular named Park Nam Jung. Like Hyunjin Young, who I've discussed in previous episodes, Park Nam Jung is an early K-pop figure who has since been written out of the narrative in English, but he was massively popular with teen girls when he first debuted in 1988. Although Hong Sobong's Kim Sakat is technically the first Korean rap song, it was more of a novelty song, like Blondie's Rapture. And some others uh, credit Park Nam Jung with the first like real attempt at a Korean language rap in his Like YG, Park Nam Jung loved the dance and early hip-hop music he was hearing at Moonlight Club. Unfortunately for Park Nam Jung, the record company he was signed to, TGR, thought he should be sticking to a more conservative sound, something closer to what the popular trot singers of the time, like Cho Young-pil, were doing. But Park Nam Jung did his best to try and meld those stodgy melodies with fresh and hip elements, whether it was his Moonlight Club dance moves or sneaking in a rap section. And clearly enough of his own flavor came through that it impressed a young middle school dropout and aspiring musician named So Teji, who happened to catch a performance of Park Nam Jung and Friends at some point in early 1991. The teenage So Teji had left heavy metal band Shinoue, and was scraping by playing bass for an indie band and trying to figure out the next steps in his career. So as the story goes, the indie band and Park Nam Jung and friends shared a bill one night, and impressed with what he saw, Soteji went backstage to introduce himself to one of those friends, happened to be YG, 
and he asked about learning how to dance. YG had no interest in teaching him. So <laughs> you have to picture at this time, Sol Teji was still just like a, a scraggly teen with long, unkept, heavy metal hair, and just not the kind of guy that YG, who was a few years older and, you know, quite handsome and cool, necessarily wanted to hang out with. So, why, so YG tells Soteji to just go to Moonlight Club, which Soteji did. But Soteji is not a club guy. So a month later, he comes back to YG saying, okay, so now will you teach me? And YG still didn't want to do it. So he quotes this outrageous sum of 4.5 million won for three months of lessons payment in advance. And by his telling was, you know, shocked when Salteji actually deposited the money. And then, you know, unfortunately, or fortunately, before lessons could really get going, YG gets called up to the military for his mandatory military service. And here our story might have taken a very different turn. YG ended up being discharged early from the military due to a previously undiagnosed heart condition. As he would explain, colorfully, about his early discharge on an episode of Healing Camp in 2012, just like how a wild bird will die if you cage it, my heart got sick, caged inside the military, unable to dance. So somewhere between six and eight months after YG disappears with Salteji's money, around October-November 1991, YG returns to Seoul, presumably with some new heart medication, and looks up the weird long-haired kid, thinking maybe he'll see if he still wants those lessons. But Salteji hadn't just sat around doing nothing for all of those months. Salteji, who again, was still a teenager at this time, had cut his long heavy metal hair and had been working on some hip-hop inspired demos for a solo album, and he was using a new digital music tool called MIDI, and a technique called sampling. Without getting too into the weeds, MIDI or Musical Instrument Digital Interface, MIDI, was a standard developed in the early 1980s that essentially allowed a composer to save the skeleton of their work, the pitch, the duration, etc., on a floppy disk. And anyone under 30 years old, ask your parents what that is. And then, to take that skeleton on the floppy disk and use it to trigger sounds on a digital instrument, like a synthesizer or a drum machine. It revolutionized the music-making game for guys like Soteji, who had no problems working alone on their computers, um, you know, in their bedrooms. And he almost certainly would have been working on something like an Atari ST. So with MIDI, you didn't need access to a huge professional studio or a team of musicians ready to play whatever charts you wrote out for them. With a handful of floppy disks, an Atari ST, and some digital instruments, a person alone in his or her bedroom could be Phil Spector and the Wrecking Crew. And then there's sampling. Sampling is one of the foundational techniques used in hip-hop. In the 1970s, DJs figured out a way to loop sounds manually on their turntables. But by the time Salteji was working on his demo, a producer or DJ would use a piece of equipment called a sampler to record a short snippet of an existing record, such as the Turtles 1960s classic, I'm Chief Kamanawanalea 
were the royal macadamia nuts. And then use that snippet in building a brand new song. Sampling is sometimes misunderstood as a lazy and uncreative way to profit off of somebody else's work. And, you know, maybe that's true in some cases. But, at its best, sampling should be understood as a postmodern composition technique akin to, say, musical collage. Sampling repurposes and recontextualizes existing sounds into new forms. It was a key part of early hip hop culture. And, as the technique spread, it led to more and more ambitious layerings of sound. Early hip-hop artists drew from a wide palette, from the aforementioned Turtles, to German pioneers' craftwork, to funk and soul artists like James Brown. So you can, um, I'm going to play a clip here of the Wu-Tang Clan's Method Man, one of, you know, my favorites, uh, talking about some of the music that inspired him, just to give you a taste of how big um kind of the pool of of music that these early hip-hop guys were pulling from and i wrote that method man joint and at that point in time i remember michael jackson had that um it was the same album with dirty diane on there and it was uh she's got we even play it at our shows now um and then i've always been a big hall and oats fan and i remember one night me mm. and Kathy, Kappa hung out all night. We was on Mescalus. So, you know, we was breaking day. We took him at about 10, 10 p.m. So we was up to like 7 a.m. Yeah. And he had this little pink radio and he was playing all these songs. But the one that stood out most to me was when Hall & Oates came on. The first song was Sarah mm-hmm. and the other one was Method of Modern Love. And it, it just, it, that, that method of modern love just stuck out to me. That whole M-E-T-K-H-O-D-O-F-L-O-V-E-E. All the notes, man. That's the mm. original white chocolate right there. Yeah, Michael mm-hmm. McDonald's. A few of those cats, yeah. you know. But that was, that was basically the premise behind, uh, the, the thought behind the whole Method Man thing. Teji was fascinated by music coming from acts like the Beastie Boys, whose 1989 album Paul's Boutique is considered an early hip-hop classic. So the Beastie Boys, um, they went on a musical journey from punk rock to hip-hop, and that has to have spoken to the former heavy metal bassist, and I don't think it's a coincidence that an early incarnation of Teji's new act was simply called 
the Teiji Boys. So again, if you remember from previous episodes, South Korea at the time had some very lax copyright rules, especially on foreign material. Bootlegged and black market media was very pervasive, and music fans didn't have that sense of preciousness about, you know, official albums the way they did and still do to an extent um, in countries like Japan. So in the memoirs of Hasegawa Yohei, a Japanese musician and vinyl collector who visited Seoul kind of around this time, he talks about walking down the street and spotting this prize album he'd been hunting for just flung on the back of a trash truck. And that's just an anecdote of how little regarded physical albums were in Korea. So while, you know, a record like De La Soul's groundbreaking Three Feet High and Rising would soon become next to impossible to make in America because of copyright restrictions and, you know, lawsuits, Sauteji in Seoul, Korea was operating in a much more friendly um, sampling environment. Accusations of plagiarism would dog Sauteji for essentially his entire career. But I think these musical borrowings are really better understood in the context of that postmodern hip-hop practice of sampling. He was remixing and recontextualizing samples of foreign sounds and songs for Korean ears and Korean tastes. He wasn't just blindly copying Western music, but rather using the tools of the hip-hop revolution to make something new out of the vast sea of music available from his local black market music dealer just like his counterparts in America. Solteji was mining these records for melodies and samples to turn into something new, something Korean. A new sound that would influence a whole new generation of Korean musicians. the story. YG is discharged with his heart condition, looks up the scraggly long-haired teen who had paid him a stupid amount of money to learn how to dance, and he finds this now short-haired Solteji who says he's preparing for a solo debut with an album of hip-hop influenced songs, dance music. Now this is something YG can work with. He wants in, and he talks Solteji into forming a trio, recruiting his friend, one of the best dancers on the scene, the guy who had famously choreographed the Mimi Pinocchio dance for Lee Sung-woo, his old buddy from Spark, Lee Juno. 
who was a good few years older than both Soteji and YG, to also join the new team. That team would become the legendary Soteji and Boys. Soteji had been shopping his demo album around with little luck. Not only were his songs a bit too out there compared to what was already on the scene, but the real deal breaker, he also wanted to be involved in the production, something that was a big no-no for the major record companies. Remember Park Namjoon getting handed those trot melodies? But like the Beatles getting rejected by the majors and ending up at small label Parlophone, with the producer whose previous work had been in comedy albums, Salateji's demo would end up at Bendo Records, a small label that had previously specialized in language instruction tapes and religious music. Bando, perhaps looking for an entry into the lucrative new pop scene, took the gamble on Sauteji. Unfortunately, perhaps because of the lack of experience in pop, they also left everything in the hands of producer-manager Yu Dae-young, a soul scenester and, you know, to be fair, an experienced DJ and producer who had previously worked with acts like Nami and Boom Boom and their 1990 hit, Like an Indian Doll. Young's role in the formation and debut of Sotajian Boys has been mythologized by Yude Young, but as best as I can tell, at some point in late 1991, early 1992, he signed Sotajian Boys to his Young planning, worked out the deal with Bando, and crucially, hired Che Jin Yol to road manage the new group. Che Jin Yol is a key piece here because he was an experienced manager with industry connections and know-how. If you remember from previous episodes, Che Jin Yol at this point in 1991 had just quit the struggling SM Entertainment after their premier hip-hop act, somewhat wild and out-of-pocket singer named Hyun Jin Young, had been caught smoking marijuana and sentenced to prison time. Che Jin Yol liked the young Seo Taeji, who in <laughs> Che Jin Yol's retellings was like a quiet, serious kid who didn't like to party and would rather be shut up in his room playing with beats than out at the club. And so he willingly took on direct management of the group. So with the team in place, the debut album, Seltaji and Boys, is released on March 23rd, 1992. A week or so later, on April 4th, 1992, the group appeared on MBC and kickstarted a Seltaji and Boys craze among teenagers with the explosive None other, yo. A lot of mythologizing has built up around this moment, and I think it's important to understand that, unlike how it's often portrayed in English, None other, yo wasn't just dropped into the Korean music scene like some kind of hip-hop cargo cult. Hip-hop sounds and dance had already been introduced to mainstream Korean teen audiences by guys like Hyun Jin Young and Park Nam Jung, not to mention, you know, Yu Dae Young. 
there were other guys making beats in their bedrooms on Atari STs in Seoul. Soltegian boys didn't revolutionize Korean teen music as much as they took a musical subculture that had been bubbling under and mainstreamed it. Which is not to say that Soltegian boys could have been anyone. Perhaps it was because he wasn't part of the existing scene around Moonlight Club that the former bass player was able to land on a fresh way of rapping in Korean. The way he played with the syllables and rhythms, it was as different to previous attempts at Korean language rap. The team also had a bold new fashion sense, as well as the best dancer and choreographer on the scene in Lee Juno. And crucially, they had the advantage of timing. Again, like the Beatles hitting America in the wake of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy when the nation really needed a pick-me-up, Sotejian boys entered the market at a time when teenagers, especially teen girls, needed something new and exciting to focus on. The teen idols of the past few years were just gone. Hyun Chin Young had been arrested. Park Nam Jung was tired. Um, Sobangcha had disbanded. Super popular foreign boy band, The New Kids on the Block, was caught up in the lip-syncing witch hunt in the wake of the Millie Vanilli scandal. Talent, luck, timing, and style. Sotejian boys had it all and the hysteria around the group hit hard and fast. So the trials and tribulations of Sauteji and boys before they finally disbanded in early 1996 deserves like their own episode series. So for right now, I'm just going to focus in on a few key things. Point one, Sauteji's rebellious business sense, which allegedly caused a lot of hostility towards him in the media. Uh, so right after they debuted, the young planning CEO was ready to ride the wave of teen popularity by scheduling just a barrage of performances, promotions, and events. This was a strategy that Salteji, who considered himself you know, an artist, not an idol, was extremely unhappy with. He wanted to be in his bedroom tinkering on his computer, not out schmoozing at the club. The last straw, at least as legend has it, was CEO Yu scheduling a concert for the group uh, without consulting them. When he found out about the scheme, Sotegi felt that it was impossible to put on a decent show with such little notice. Again, he was an artist, not a dancing monkey, but they were unable to cancel with all the advertisements already circulating and tickets sold. And, you know, they felt like they had no choice but to perform. But the strain and stress of this was something that Sotegi did not want to repeat. You know, in retrospect, this concert had clearly been scheduled because of the existing industry mentality of squeezing every last drop from a new artist before the fickle teen audiences had a chance to get bored. Make hay while the sun shines, oversaturate the market while you have teens' attention. It's an extremely short-sighted strategy, although one that you can still find, you know, all over K-pop. But Soltegi was going to flip the script. So with Soltegi unhappy with CEO Yu and his management, he just fired him and started his own company, hiring on the experienced former SM employee, Che jin to take care of the management. And this was arguably more explosive in the Korean music industry than the teen hysteria unleashed by Nan Audio. An artist firing his management and starting his own company? Can you do that? Well, Sotaeji did. After the debacle with CEO Yu, Sotaeji, now under his own management, leaned into a strategy that was like the opposite of oversaturation, was undersaturation, or what would become, 
or what would come to be known as the mystery strategy. Reserved by nature, Seltaji limited his public appearances, refusing to do the kinds of PR that would have been expected of a musician executive at his level. He believed that this strategy of under-saturation would prolong his shelf life as a musician, even if it ruffled some feathers in the short term. Unlike the Japanese-style idol strategy later employed by SM Entertainment beginning with HOT, with a focus on various types of media, including film, Saltagi and Boys only appeared on television to perform their songs. Well, that is, when they weren't getting hassled by television censors for their costumes and lyrics. Saltagi was a middle school dropout in a culture that still puts a lot of emphasis on formal education. He was a homebody and something of a teetotaler, in a business culture that still revolves around drinking too much and partying. And rather than do business with the old men of the industry, he started his own company and did things his own way. But the negative press from following his own path didn't seem to dampen the demand for his music. If anything, his rebellious image made him even more beloved by his fans. So point two. Something else to note about Sauteji and Boys is that Sauteji and Boys had inadvertently kickstarted something that I like to call the K-pop trend generator. K-pop, or at this time just Gayo in Korean, more than any other popular music industry that I've encountered, just it lives and dies by the trend generator. In my opinion at least, the K-pop industry is at its best when there's a strong, unique, artistic vision dominating the scene, giving lots of good material and inspiration for the rest of the industry. In K-pop, a rising tide lifts all boats, and an artistic vacuum sinks them. Saltagi and Boys had inadvertently kicked off the dance singer wave, and it led not only to Hyunjin Young's triumphant, at least for the moment, return to great acclaim with his album New Dance 2 and its title track, You and My Unclear Memory, which replaced non-audio on teen stereo systems across the country, but it also opened up room for acts like Cool, Turbo, Deuce, Kanon, Goopy, uh, and an aspiring young singer named J.Y. Park. But like any great artist, Santeji was not content to repeat himself, not musically and not stylistically. Each new album cycle brought with it not only a new sound, not only new dance trends, but a new style. Saltagi and Boys understood that they weren't just making music, they were putting out a complete pop culture package with every comeback. The first album was known for Ijuno's Whirlwind Dance, as well as what was called the School Look, which featured lots of bold primary colors, shorts, and the infamous overalls with one strap undone. Saltagi himself was especially striking in this look, which emphasized his youth and his delicate appearance. Female fans in particular were drawn to this cute, like, little prince look. Santeji and Boy's next album, Santeji and Boy's 2, released in June 1993, leaned heavily into Santeji's wheelhouse, heavy metal and rock. It even included a sultry sax-laden power ballad, The Lovely To You. Think about it. Oh, I'm so 
on tracks like the absolute banger, Anyhow Song, you can hear the seeds of the maximalist sound that would feed into what SM music director Yu Young Jin would go on to perfect with H.O.T. This mix of R&B, hip-hop, and screaming heavy metal. Slotagian boys combined this sound with a fashion style influenced by reggae and hip-hop. They popularized baggy oversized trousers worn low on the hips, and even for the very fashion-forward teens, a reggae perm. And it was this look, specifically the, the, you know, quote, reggae perms, more than the music that got them banned from television and inflamed the critics and censors already not inclined to cut them any slack due to, you know, the combative attitude towards the industry. Sante GM Boys 3, released in August 1994, switched styles again and had songs like the classic rock-soaked Dreaming of Balhae. <laughs>
to go with the Zeppelin-esque anthem. The style theme was sort of like fantasy British Isles, with Saltagey infamously even appearing in a kilt. Saltagey and Boys 4, released in October 1995, is a return to the hip-hop sounds of the first album, something that YG himself would later take credit for encouraging. The group promoted the songs in nylon snowboarding gear and vivid multicolored hair, something that would later become a K-pop style standard. So it, this is just to emphasize that it wasn't just the music itself that hit big with the youth. These fashion trends pushed the envelope of what could be allowed on television, and despite, or perhaps because of, the controversies around, you know, reggae perms and kilts and vivid multicolored hair, teenagers were quick to jump on board and follow along. If we are to take Sotejian boys as the, you know, quote, fathers of K-pop, then we need to understand that this absolutely includes both the boundary-pushing music, dance, and fashion. Point three. The last thing I want to touch on with Sauteji and Boys is his relationship with the fans. There's an anecdote from Chejun Yul's memoirs, a book I've only found in pieces online, um, which may be apocryphal, so take it with a grain of salt. The story goes that Sauteji had given strict instructions that every fan letter was to be kept. However, one day, while he was, you know, at the office, he witnessed a fan finding a postcard in the garbage and, you know, having something of a breakdown over it. Sateji was furious, and from then on, only he would handle the fan mail. Sateji disbanded the official, like, fan club, afraid that fan culture was becoming too commercialized. But unofficially, Sateji and boys fans organized themselves into a powerful consumer block. Famously, they took over the entire third floor at the first Dream concert in 1995, a feat that would become a mark of prestige for K-pop boy groups in the years to come. Sateji might have been too ethical to try and milk his fandom of every last one, but the industry was watching. Fans, especially passionate female fans, were a large and as of yet untapped resource. When Sateji and boys announced their disbandment in January 1996, just months after the fourth album release, it was a pure media circus. The group still operating under the, you know, mystery strategy of minimal press engagement, just seemingly vanished, popping up days later, holed up in a hotel outside of the city, before finally holding a press conference on January 31st, 1996, announcing the disbandment, and Sotegi announcing his retirement. So yeah, January 1996, Sotegi fucks off to America, but YG and E. Juno were not finished with the entertainment business. YG took all that money he'd saved from his time in Saltagian Boys and started a new company, Hyun Planning. And he quickly launched his own three-member boy group called Keep Six in July 1996. So that's like super short turnaround time, right? Um, and unlike the kind of, you know, wild styling and music of Saltagian Boys, Keep Six were a pretty straight-ahead R&B dance vocal group. <laughs>
guys were talented, and the songs are, you know, they're catchy, they're cute. There's absolutely nothing wrong with keepsakes. Unfortunately, they happened to debut about a month or so before SM Entertainment launched HOT on September 7th, 1996. Uh, yeah. So, Keep Six debut album, Sunk Without a Trace, taking all of YG's savings with it. So, just understand, all of that Saltagey money was gone, right? He'd played it safe with Keep Six and lost, he just lost it all. He lost everything. And, you know, YG, um, remember, he's the son of an electrician, right? That's not exactly Silver Spoon family background. And fans new to K-pop may think of YG Entertainment as this, like, massive, big three, eternal conglomerate, but it came from very humble origins. Even with nothing in his pockets but a dream, YG did not give up. He pulled on his greatest strength. Well, two of his greatest strengths. Number one, identifying talented people. And two, getting together with them to make things happen. So Hyun Planning was bankrupt. Finished, kaput, donezo. So YG reached out to Yedang Music CEO Byando Sob. And with a new partnership in place, well, he tried again. So Yedang Music was a passion project of CEO Byun, who was a great lover of music by all accounts, and who was doing quite well at the time. Um, so taking a chance on one of Soteji's boys was kind of right in line with what the company was doing. Um, you know, he'd picked up the very popular um, dance music group Deuce after their third album. Um, he'd worked with Rura, who were another very popular group. And he'd even distributed, uh, like, world-class artists like Soviet rock legend Victor Tsui in Korea. So the partnership with YG would end up serving both sides really well while it lasted, which it did for some years to come. Um, like, the earliest Big Bang singles um, were even released on Yedang, and you can see those online. So with everything on the line, right, like, <laughs> tried once, failed, lost it all, he's not going to get a third chance. So rather than continue trawling like the same old dance scene in Seoul, he went scouting abroad. Specifically, he went to Los Angeles, which has a massive Korean diaspora population. And the crew that he would gather was the Major Flava, or MF family, which would form the core of what I and I think, you know, most most people consider like the classic early era of YG Entertainment. So the story goes, again, it could be apocryphal. This is a story I saw. In 1997, YG greeted Saltagian Boys fans at a fan event and told them he would be debuting a new group soon, and he played a new song for them. That song was Gasoline, and that new group was called Jinishan. Everybody knows the info Staring through them eyes Knowing that you're about to Wreck <gasps> Carry gas blazing all Because you face them all Never lost a battle Cause you rattle when you waste them all Now what you do to be true It may work for you But in the long run You could be done We heard that root boy sound We all hit the ground Man, you explode like gasoline You know what I mean? 
Their debut album, Gina Sean, would be released on March 1st, 1997. And with it would come a new chapter in K-pop. You know, Keep Six, again, they were fine. They were completely fine. But they had been missing something crucial. Branding. Call it the major flavor factor. YG was going to double down on MF. Not only was Gasoline a heavier hip-hop sound than anything YG had done before with Saltagy and Boys, but it was also very cool and had more than just a touch of the American exotic. The music video was set in Los Angeles and even had some scenes inside a prison. But Major Flava was not simple hip-hop posturing. Jinu and Sean were both Korean-American. Sean was from Guam, an American military hub like Seoul, and Jinu was from California. This new generation of Korean-American rappers brought with them, back to Korea, attitudes and experiences that gave their lyrics and music a different feel to what was already on the scene in Seoul, maybe even letting them tap into that growing diaspora market. And Jinu Sean were not like boyish teen idols. They were a well-matched set of tall, handsome, confident, worldly, and sophisticated men. Jinushan offered something completely different to what was on the market already. They were not a dance music duo like Deuce or Klon. They were a hip-hop duo. Jinu was already in his mid to late 20s when he debuted, and famously, he's the grandnephew of the very respected artist Namjoon Pink. And he'd attempted a singing career a few years previously, debuting in 1994, without gaining much traction. And he'd gone back to Los Angeles before getting scouted by YG. So Sean, also in his mid-20s, had been the leader of the third generation of Hyunjin Young's backing group Wawa under Lee Seung-man and SM, before Hyunjin Young's second arrest and scandal. Sean had also been a back dancer for Sotegium Boys. And he was like the double threat, rap and dance. And Sean had been known in the moonlight scene for his cool dancing, but just as important, his cool fashion. So out and about around Seoul, Sean just like exuded hip hop style with his Nike Air Force Ones, oversized t-shirts and baggy jeans. So YG was not taking any chances with their debut album. If they flopped, it like that that was it. He's like going back to <laughs> like working uh, on the building sites. So you know every industry connection was used, including bringing in ringers like the talented Lee Hyun Do from Deuce. Uh, you know again also under Yedang, and popular female singer Eun Jung Hwa who you know, is really an honorary member of the YG family. So while it was like the quote authentic hip hop of gasoline that would spark a new generation of young aspiring Korean rappers, the upbeat love song Tell Me featuring Um Jung Hwa was like the hit off the album. And it remains one of their best known and most popular songs. I'm 
produced by Lee Hyun Do, with Jinushan contributing their verses. Tell Me is a back and forth between a lady, Um Jung Hwa, and her gentleman lovers. <laughs> Tell me what's really in your heart, Um Jung Hwa plaintively sings while Jinushan rap the man's point of view back to her. So the album, you know, did well enough selling a reported 700,000 copies that YG, after renaming MF Planning to Yangoon or YG Planning due to some, you know, sticky trademark issues, was able to launch their backing dancers as a new group, a four-member hip-hop group called One Time. One Time debuted 18 months after Junushan on November 15th, 1998, with the album One Time for Your Mind. So Junushan were already adults at debut, right? But One Time, like, they were flat-out teenagers, and they had, like, this effortless, goofy, floppy-haired teen boy vibe that you know, it, it just was this naturalistic, like, vibe that really wasn't like anything else um, on the scene in Seoul at the time. And like Jinushan, they had something of an American glamour and were 100% hip-hop. But they were also positioned to tap into that large teen market that SM Entertainment had unlocked with HOT. They weren't teen idols, but they were teen idol adjacent. Cute and charismatic enough that girls love them and put posters on the wall, but also like, you know, cool. So guys didn't have to be embarrassed to be fans. So one time's leader was a kid named Teddy who had been born in Korea, but had gone to school in the US, uh, specifically in Los Angeles where he'd met his buddy, Danny. And the two were like massive rap and hip hop fans. And according to Danny, the pair recorded a rap demo at a local studio that just ended up in the hands of YG, who'd been impressed enough to ask to meet them. So the two LA kids would be joined by trainees Oh Jin Hwan and Sung Bik Kyung, who were both from Seoul. And there was one more American recruit working behind the scenes, a guy named Perry, who was an old buddy of Sean's from Guam, mixed race rapper born in California, but who had moved to Guam with his family like as a kid. So Gasoline is credited to Young Hyung Suk, but is widely believed to have been written by Perry. Perry's Guam crew had been called Maja Flava, and he had even drawn the Maja Flava logo. Perry is also all over the early one-time catalog. For all that YG likes to tie his past with Salteji into the YG entertainment mythology, in my opinion anyway, it's really that combination of Perry and his American hip-hop sound with Lee Hyun Do's, like, you know, Korean dance music flavor that really was the calling card of this first generation of YG entertainment, and not the rock-based sound of Sautage Young Boys. So Perry's sound was, like, clean and sparse, and he likes layering these different keyboard lines, forming melodies that just, like, catch in your ear and they, like, stay there. One Time, from <laughs> One Time's debut album, is a good example of the classic Perry sound. There's like this little synthesizer riff that it just like hooks into your ear and, and just stays there. How? 
was not only a talented producer, but he was also a mentor in the studio, helping to create a culture at YG Entertainment that encouraged the young talents to take an active role in creating their own music. For years, it was this culture in the studio that set YG Entertainment apart from other K-pop companies. Not that other idols from other companies didn't write and produce. Of course they did, but it became something that YG Entertainment was like known for. Danny from One Time describes hiding away with the members at a house and just like recording their third album <laughs> like on their own. And you know, okay, maybe their third album wasn't all that well received, but the fact that YG let his acts do pretty much whatever they wanted set the agency apart from other entertainment companies. And the trust that YG had in his talents paid off. So after bombing with their first self-produced album, one time came back with Once and For All at the end of 2003, which was well-received and included the song Hot, which is now considered one of their like signature songs, written and produced by Teddy. Although you can definitely still hear that Perry influence. Perry had stayed behind the scenes, likely because he didn't speak Korean all that well at the time. But, you know, his kind of talent can't stay hidden away forever, and on September 4th, 2001, Perry made his own debut with an album called Storm. Hanging a lampshade on how unusual his mixed-race ethnic background was in Korean pop at the time, Perry bleached his hair blonde and he wore colored contacts, which, you know, on purpose or not, leaned into that fashion-forward look pushed by Saltagian boys just a few years earlier. And on that title track, of that debut was a rap feature by a talented young trainee, all of 13 years old, going by the name G-Dragon. Yes, 
So while hip hop in Korea was generally booming in this like early 2000s era with Drunken Tiger, DJ Doc, Cho PD, and a young talented guy named Psy, um, you know, all quite popular following in the wake of Jinushan and the MF come YG family, Jinushan's Ayo in particular, the title track from their 2001 album, The Rain, was like a super hit and one that's had like a long legacy. And I even came across a fan cam of SM Entertainment Idols rapping Ayo at an SM Town concert in 2010. That's like a long life for a, for a song. Unfortunately, you know, as the, the early 2000s kind of like clicked along, um, the financial side of the music market in Korea was in the process of tanking. Record sales for premier teen idol group HOT had even started downsliding, you know, let alone for the hip-hop not-quite-idol group one time, or hip-hop acts without the support of a strong um, fan base of teen girls. Illegal downloads were cutting into revenues, and although there were moves to try to mitigate this by cutting deals with the big tech companies who were manufacturing devices like the brand new MP3 player, it was like trying to put a box around the ocean tide. Total losing battle. And there was also a massive crackdown of corruption in the music industry in 2002, referred to as PRB, which we translate uh, in English as something like PR gate, right? And as far as I could tell, YG and his company, YG Entertainment, were not directly implicated in the corruption charges, but the investigations were just like, it threw a chilling effect over the entire industry. Um, as executives like Isuman of SM Entertainment uh, fled the company to avoid arrest. And it was at this point in 2002, dealing with, you know, very low funding, that YG would bring on his brother, Youngman Suk, to manage the financial side of things. So anyway, for a number of reasons, while Perry's album had been, you know, well-received by hip-hop heads, it just, it had not been a massive financial success that um, Genishin's rap debut had been just a couple years earlier. But then, you know what? No one's albums were selling, like, even 300,000 copies, let alone 700,000. Old methods of generating profit were just, like, increasingly unviable. Dance music was out. Even idol groups were out. Um, New revenue streams, like, needed to be found, and they needed to be found ASAP. And two avenues that looked promising were from, number one, soloists, and two, expanding overseas. JYP Entertainment had just debuted a promising young R&B singer slash dancer named Rain, and SM Entertainment had just blown open the door to Japan with a very young and talented singer named Boa. Enter Seven. And enter he did on a pair of Heelys, booting that sputtering K-pop trend generator back into action and re-injecting life into the floundering agency. The young... Che Dong-wook, soon to be known across Asia by his stage name, Seven, had joined YG Entertainment as a trainee when he was in middle school, grinding away at rehearsals after school like he stuck with it despite the objections of his father. And when YG was looking around for a potential teen idol, hey, there was like, there's Dong-wook. He was the right age, he could sing and dance well, he was charismatic, and importantly, he was really cute. After a test-run song on a YG Family album in late 2002, Seven made his debut on March 8, 2003 with an album titled 
just listen. Seven not only got the nation's teenagers wearing Heelys, he broke new ground and new revenue streams for YG Entertainment by signing on to a a boatload of brand endorsements and other non-music projects. So Seven was absolutely part of the YG family, but he leaned further into the commercial side of things than the YG family had previously ventured. And it's not that he was less authentic in his art than one time, you know, but he was a lot more polished, having had all of that time as a trainee. And Seven wasn't marketed as a rapper, but as an R&B singer slash dancer. Think of um, like American artists like Usher or the White Usher, Justin Timberlake, as examples of the, the kind of artist that Seven was. Seven's debut stage on Music Camp on March 22nd, 2003, for title track Come Back to Me, has him styled about 180 degrees opposite of Ragtag one time. He's got like this glowing skin and gently feathered hair and is wearing a white suit that is a stylized version of a school uniform. A wind machine kicks in at the chorus, right? One time may have been cute, but one time were cute. But Seven? He was a heartthrob, baby. Come Back to Me was a straight-ahead K-pop R&B ballad. But Just Listen still has that classic YG family sound on songs like Lose Control, written by Perry and featuring YG singer Sung and YG rapper Lexi, who, like Seven, would also end up pushed in a more poppy direction. Interestingly, at the same time that Seven was being prepared to like be launched into pan-Asian superstardom, YG Entertainment was also keeping a foot in the local Korean music scene by partnering with R&B producer Park Kyung-jin, who was responsible for debuting like the very well-respected vocal group Big Mama, who were <laughs> deliberately promoted as being selected for their vocals, not their looks. All right, classy, right? Park Kyung-jin also worked on Just Listen, mixing his R&B style with Perry's hip-hop beats, you know, just kind of really truly mingling the commercial and the artistic in a way that YG Entertainment would be known for, for like at least the next decade plus. And you know what? It worked. Seven sat on the top of the music show rankings for over a month with his title track, Come Back to Me, and the follow-up album in 2004, Must Listen, with the title track, Passion, did just as well. In 2005, Seven made his official debut in Japan with a song called Hikari and followed it up with a steady drip of singles. The media package around Seven emphasized that he wasn't just, you know, riding the Korean wave, 
but was aiming to be like the complete artist like Boa. As 2005 turned to 2006, YG Entertainment had left the doldrums in the early 2000s far behind, and YG was even in the media floating the idea of an American debut for Seven, bringing the Korean take on hip-hop and R&B back to America. Seven was the present, Seven was the future, Seven was the hope for global domination. But while Seven was off conquering the global R&B market, YG couldn't just like let the domestic market wither away. Thanks to SM Entertainment, boy groups are back and back in a big way. SM Entertainment offered polished vocals and dancing, but what if YG offered his own twist on like the concept of the boy group? Following in Seven's footsteps, this new group would combine the commercial and the artistic, leaning into the self-produced branding that YG had carried with him from his days in Saltagian Boys. This would be Korea's first boy group to really combine the hip-hop sound with the glitz of the idol world, something that teenagers in Korea could really take to and have as their own. Like one time, they would be cool enough for guys to listen to, but like Seven, they'd have that heartthrob appeal to hook the ladies. And that group would be called Big Bang. And with that cliffhanger in place, I'll send you out on one of my favorite tracks from Gina Shun's The Rain, their excellent 2001 album. Before working on this episode series, to be honest, I really had not listened to much of their catalog, but I found myself driving around town just like blasting the rain. I mean, maybe that says more about my age than anything else, but I gotta say, I was digging that JS flavor. So this is a track three of The Rain, a little song called Real Ones, and that's W-U-N-Z, so you know it's cool. Music by Perry and featuring Be Real of California hip-hop group Cypress Hill, who, according to a 2001 interview with Genu, waived his usual fee because he dug what they were doing. And you know what, Be Real? I dig what they were doing, too. So, yeah, the album is available on Spotify, so you, too, can blast it while driving around town. Run up, guess what? I'm stopping that shit. Check the mic cord every place I roam. Make your blood spill out when you see my chrome. It's fantastic, drastic the way I flow. Yo, incredible, unforgettable. Make it bounce to the rhythm. What counts? I hit them straight ounce of venom. Straight amount of rhythm regulating. Yes, heavyweight swinging. Better get ready, sucker. The bell ringing. I'm the psycho, looking for the prey. All the way out in the boondocks with the AK, the assassin.
좀더 필하게 더더 진하게 21세기 이 세계가 하나 돼 대한민국 빛나네 제싹발 슬 겁나게 왜 가슴이 벗기고 네 심장이 뛰고 그게 바로 내게 바로든 나라고 Now we breathe this, we be this Ingenious with this, plus we fiend this Believe this is 풀린 초점을 맞춰 거룩한 고요 속에 나는 외쳐 풀린 개처럼 끝달려 그 어떤 자가 가로막고 감히 말려 매진한 불고자나 끝없이 펼쳐 이 한번 봐줘 빛을 또 비춰 어둠 속에 있는 너 길을 지켜 Who will be, who will be 가짜들은 저리 비켜 S.E.A.A 내가 받고 가겠어 Real ones, large and nectar Gotta be. 